Are you short-staffed? Are you not trading to your full capacity? Are the same old ways of recruiting just not working? Are your recruitment costs escalating? Are you finding careers fairs and job boards less effective? Are you really targeting the people that you want? You can with Hospitality Rising. Hospitality Rising is a modern and relevant way to make hospitality a true career of choice. We've delivered over 55,000 real applications and over 10 million TikTok views in just 12 weeks. Join the revolution, let's stand together and rise up together to grab the talent we all deserve. And with six month packages available from just five pounds per employee, the real question is, why have you not invested in the future of hospitality? For more information and to invest, just email hello at hospitalityrising.org. That's hello at hospitalityrising.org. I'm Mark McCulloch, the founder of Hospitality Rising. Thanks for listening. Supersonic. 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 Welcome to Supersonic Hospitality Marketing with me, Mark McSee, where we meet the most interesting people in hospitality, marketing, business, and beyond to hear tips, tricks, and tales to help your brand boom. This podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity, and serve guests better. Hey there, my name is Paul Barron. I'm the founder of I Am Donna. We are the restaurant chain on a mission to revolutionize the kebab. In 2016, we opened our first site in Leeds with massive ambitions to go global. But first, we needed a change. Being a chef, I've always been a bit skeptical about being pushed down the technological route. But what it's done for labor and customer service has completely changed the game for us. We partnered with Vita Mojo to introduce their all-in-one restaurant platform. We now take 100% of our orders digitally through kiosks, click and collect and delivery channels. We've waved goodbye to the manual processing of delivery orders as we now have all our delivery partners integrated through Vita Mojo. We only need to do one menu push when updating menus across all platforms. Orders from all channels come into one screen in the kitchen making the operation faster and more efficient. The throughput is four times faster and we've seen a 35% increase in ATV. Our partnership with Vita Mojo has transformed I am Donna. It's a massive part of our revolution. Find out more at vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic. I'm about to reveal hospitality's best kept secret. HDI are a mind-blowing hospitality data insight provider working with over 50 different businesses from pubs and bars to casual dining, QSR and coffee. Since 2017, they've led the way creating incredible insights from debit and credit card spending. If you want to know the customer profile and performance of every site on your street, which brands are performing best or where else your customers go, give HDI a shout. For mind-blowing hospitality data insights based on real credit card and debit card data, contact hello at hdinsights.com. That's hello at hdinsights.com.
Hello, it's the morning after the Michelin Awards last night, so I hope that you've found some new favourites. However, there has been a bit of a backlash on Michelin and talking around the amount of pressure that it puts people under. And also, is it the right organisation, for example, to be judging what good culinary experiences are all about. So I'm going to stay out of that one, but it's a very interesting one. Even the people who are the most decorated are coming back and having their opinion on it. Also last night, I went to see the Michael Jordan Nike movie by Ben Stiller and Matt Damon, which is called Air. And not only is it an okay film, um, it's a 6 out of 10, 10 out of 10 soundtrack and an 11 out of 10 shoe and a 12 out of 10 basketball player and athlete in general. But it really did get me thinking about great businesses and the people behind great businesses also. So just to give you a flavour of that, I wanted to share Phil Knight, the shoe dog who started Nike. And it was confirmed last night, Nike is the way to say it. So there's Nike and Nike and all the rest of it. So I'm quite glad because that's always the way that I've said it. So in terms of setting up his business and the business that we all know and love now, there was a 10-point manifesto that was sent round with the swoosh at the top. And in order, here's what makes up Nike's business. So number one, our business is change. Number two, We're on offense, the attack, all the time. Number three, perfect results count. Not a perfect process. Break the rules, fight the law. This is as much about battle as it is about business. Number five, assume nothing. Make sure people keep their promises, push yourselves, push others and stretch the possible. Number six, live off the land. So I guess that's meaning use what you've got. Number seven, your job isn't done until the job is done. Number eight, some watch outs. So dangers, bureaucracy, personal ambition, energy takers versus energy givers, knowing our weakness, don't get too many things on a platter. Number nine, it won't be pretty. Number 10, if we do the right things, we'll make money damn near automatic. And when I reread this, because I've known about it for a while and referred to it now and again, I was thinking, A, is that suitable for the times we're in now? There's a lot of it, I think, with the culture that we have and new generations coming through. It won't resonate with them as much as making legacy, making a difference, you know, all these types of things. But I knew we had a bumper podcast coming up today And that is with an amazing business person who's definitely led three or four careers in his career already and is only, God, halfway through. Today, you're in for a treat and it's one of those almost impermeable guests where there's just so many layers and so much stuff to get through that the 400 questions I could have asked, I think we got round about 10% of them and slightly often tangents and looking at connections we had and also some best hacks for you in business and some best advice. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. So our next guest came from Humble Beginnings and is a third generation hotelier and then went into catering at university, catering management. So actually thinking about Hospitality Rising, my pet project, Gareth, who's our next guest, really is one of the poster chills for this, you know, in terms of coming in, 
studying or working in hospitality through their lives, and then rising to the very top and the boardroom. So without further ado, I'll introduce my next guest where you're just going to join us mid-conversation, I think, then we'll get to the intro. It was one of those shows. And it's Gareth Walters, who is Area Director, International Operations, Northern Europe and Africa for Focus Brands, otherwise known as the House of Franchises for Jamba, Cinnabon, Auntie Anne's and many more. But we also skip through his career where we talk about working with great groups like My Hotel, The Langham and many, many other multinational huge names in hospitality and hotels all around the world. Anywho, right, um, I suppose we better get on with this. So it gives me the most better call Saul Cinnabon pleasure ever to introduce my next guest, who is Gareth Walters, Area Director, International Operations, Northern Europe, including Scotland, and Africa for Focus Brands. Hello. Pleasure to be here, Mark, and uh, many thanks for the invitation. And, and on the offset, huge you know, huge applause for what you're doing, hospitality rising and the numbers and the the mark you're making in terms of recruitment and, and bringing hospitality uh, back to full, fuller employment. It, it's really great to see and, and your coverage online and offline really couldn't be any greater. Thanks so much. So uh, where in the world are you right now then? So currently in, in, uh, in Dulwich, Southeast London, which is a uh, a lovely green part of of London. It, it's very close to Peckham, which is far trendier than when I left my travels <laughs> fifteen or so years ago, and about to become even more trendy with the movie Rye Lane that's about to to come out. Uh huh. Camberwell's about half a mile up the road. The nearest train station is uh, East Dulwich, and we're about a mile away from Dulwich Village. And do you go and watch your football? Do you watch the Dulwich football team ever? I, I actually read it online this morning. They actually had a collaboration with Atletico Bilbao last weekend. Mm. So they had about 100 Spanish fans come over for non-league day. Oh, they, wow. do, they do a tremendous amount in the community. And obviously with the Peter Crouch documentary and everything else, Dulwich Hamlet has been a bit of a blueprint for how clubs can be run by the community. Uh, I've only been once so far. I've got twin boys who are nine. uh, So probably next season we'll go along to to a couple of games because it's, like I said, all the pubs are full, all the restaurants are full when they're playing. Meet Smith and all the other guys have special offers on the day Dulwich Hamlet are playing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's great to have it around the corner. Um, And, yeah, we're, we're very happy to be based here. That's really cool. I think uh, Meat Liquor sponsored the dugouts, didn't they? Could well be. I'm sure it, they it did. Could well be. The um, if you go there, the branding is noticeable. I think you'll on a match day you'll get. Well, it might <laughs> I might overcommit them to a discount now, but something like twenty five to thirty percent off your uh, your burgers there. Oh, okay. Nice, nice. Right. Oh, so just diving in quickly, and then I've got a bit of an aside I want to talk to you about. But um, diving in quickly, we met through Mark Ritson's course, I think, right? Yeah, that's right. Originally, I believe it was the first course, mm-hmm. um, the the mini MBA in marketing. And 
possibly we're on the same alumni for the the second course which was the brand marketing course also mm. with yeah. the uh with the sim sim as the assignment at the end where you had to change prices and you keep your brand dna the same but you would change your price up mm. and it was a bit bit like battleships yeah. and each time having tweaked your premium brand and your economy brand you then get your results back um and it, it proved uh my my pricing was very aggressive more like a, a louis vuitton type year-on-year <laughs> -year increase and uh the, the sim I, I managed to recover i think through the economy brand but but certainly the overall sim mark was uh was not as high as some other students in the class but yeah. a fantastic course yeah definitely i mean I'd, I'd really recommend it to anyone um the only downside is the more and more client side people that do it the less clever you look when you're in meetings <laughs> well, to, to a degree but i think again overall the quality of marketing will improve and, and, yes. and again people will will be work, working on parts of the business that are meaningful and the more training the better right and and I'd, i don't know professor ritson personally pre-course but i'd read his articles in marketing week and seen his youtube videos and he just delivers in an incredibly humorous but practical manner. So yeah. when he launched this course, you know, you, you really just look like a, a great opportunity to obviously get educated in relation to what he was doing at some of the world's top business schools. But also it, it was probably a couple of decades before when I did my original master's in marketing Uh and you're always conscious because of media and everything else, how fast paced supposedly everything is, is going. So doing the course with Professor Ritson, it, it was even, even better than high expectations. And, and the brand marketing course, especially whilst I wasn't in a brand manager role, things like brand architecture so rarely get written about. Mm. And, 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 you know, you, you could see through the modules and the HBS articles and everything else that it's actually the root of many, many problems. But, you know, unless you're aware of what brand architecture is and some of the implications, you probably predispose to think that the more brands, the better. And yeah. certainly you can see industries that think that way rather than taking that woolly sheep and shaving it and the Ford example – and, you know, just great takeaways and, and really enjoyed both courses. Yeah, definitely. I mean, do you, do you know what happened to me? So basically, I cocked up the uh, simulator really bad, really bad. And I was uh, watching the results seminar. Uh, I was going on to a, a ferry uh, coming back from Isla White on holiday. And I said uh, to, to Pam Maxwell, I said, do you mind if I go into this, you know? And she said, um, I when you go, you know, we're only just sitting parking, you know. So anyway, went in and my paper is superimposed behind them. And I was like, oh God, this is either really good or really bad. <laughs> um, and then he, he went, he goes, oh, yours was my favourite paper. You know, well done. So I'm upgrading you to an A. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> because... Uh, you know, you can obviously download your certificate without putting your grade on 
and, and take a pass. Yes. Um, or, you know, the people that are proudly get A's and B's usually are the ones that, 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 that download it. But um, no, I, I'd recommend it to anyone. I, I think it's it's fantastic. So no, it's really, really good. Um, I think the interesting thing with that um, mobile phone assignment, and we obviously had the moon as the, the all singing, all dancing, had rich history and heritage, but had lost its way a bit. Mm. And then you had the, the budget one. I don't think the sim was intended to show how difficult it is to manage two brands simultaneously in different segments. Mm. But that actually was the pain point for most in that yeah. they didn't manage to score well simultaneously on both mobile phones. And then when you think of P&G or Unilever or any of these companies that have got many, many brands, you like that, that then becomes very complex, but, mm. uh, that, that again was a takeaway from that simulation was that you could concentrate on one and do well, but the minute you're trying to do both, uh, yeah. strategic decisions became a bit more uh, complex, even though you could only pull a few levers. Well, it's really interesting you're saying that because, you know, I, I think about this often and I'm a little bit more in the restaurant and pub world than I'm hotels. You know, I've, I've dabbled, obviously, Red Carnation and, and different things, last minute don't come in the past. But in terms of sub-brands, there, there really aren't many successful ones in casual dining, you know, takeaways, all the rest of it. You know, it really doesn't seem to go well. I'm not sure why that is, but, you know, you've had, I think, Wagamama tried it, uh, Ping Pong tried it, um, who else? Pret had sort of petty prets and things like that, but it wasn't, you know, full sub-brands really. I guess veggie pret, you could say. Um, and certainly they're, they're, they're sort, of, sort of reversing on those. But, I mean, in your world with your hotels hat on, you know, from, from old, did you see a lot of sub-brands work successfully? Because it feels like a lot of them have big portfolios and they seem to do it really well. Well, again, it was quite interesting that there, there's a bit of a disconnect between the theory and then the reality in, in, in hospitality. And I think it was probably about 2015 or 2016 when Professor Ritson does some of the biggest news stories in marketing for the year and he does the rundown. And he talked about the Marriott-Starwood merger or acquisition, whatever oh, yeah. it was, but the bringing together of all the brands. And he said, so the next thing that will happen is that they'll kill off three or four brands, you know, possibly this one, that one. <laughs> and, and that's never happened. So they've yeah. never, ever done any brand rationalization. The big four hotel companies by quite a distance are Hilton and Marriott. Then you've got Accor and then you've got IHG. Now, all of those companies have brands that would hit almost every sphere between luxury right the way down to economy and they've all been adding brands over the years in in what they've said you know the swim lanes or the white space and that's really a development decision because their developers go out to owners and I'd say okay Mr McSee we're gonna we want you to put the the this brand on your hotel and you know the more the more brands you have, in theory, the more opportunities. Mm -hmm. So, the net unit growth that you can add to the the company will be looked at every quarter. And if you don't have a brand in each swim swim lane, you're going to struggle to sign them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, 
you know, all of these companies have added. They've added a lot in the lifestyle and luxury sector. Um, there are some amazing brands in each each of those four companies. But I suspect if you do some of the exercises that that you did during this brand architecture segment of Professor Ritson's course, mm-hmm. you'd probably get the same findings, you know, with 90-plus percent of profits coming from three of 20 brands or three or four companies taking X number of brands. But, um, you know, it, 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 like I said, it, it's driven by development. And every quarter when you re- report your net unit growth score compared to the other three, you need a big arsenal of brands to do that. So, yeah, it, it's quite interesting that hotels have never for I can't think of a single hotel brand that's ever been killed off, to be honest with you. They they continue to move along. And some of that, again, is probably down to the tenure and the length of management agreement owners sign when they when they do sign a brand. Yeah. And the other thing that the operators want is multi-brands so they can go after owners in the same city. So if you're in a place like Brighton and there's a Hilton, then I want a double tree and I want a garden in and I want a few more that that obviously allow me to put other management or franchise agreements in in a place like Brighton. Yeah. It's really interesting because when I was back at lastminute.com, I mean, my final project before I was leaving was to rationalize all the brands that we had. And I think we had 28 or something. And including Bob Geldof's deckchair.com and Holiday Autos, which lastminute.com acquired 20 years ago yesterday. So congratulations to Clive and Dunks and Matt and all that. Um, but, you know, it really was astounding when you went and did that diagnosis thing that that, that Martinson talks about in his, in his uh, you know, course where you start. Obviously, market orientation, does the market want this? But then when you got into the diagnosis, we were bidding against ourselves for clicks you know it's just madness you know so Travelosity was bidding against lastminute.com was bidding against holidays and more was bidding again and you just could not believe what you know once you actually sat down and thought no wonder we don't make a profit you know this is absolutely friendly fire you know it's crazy well yeah the cost base is obviously that more extensive every time you wrote you, you launch a brand, right? Because mm. you, you, the brand marketing budget, if you have the setup that Professor Ritson used to talk about with Louis Vuitton again, they all mm. seem to have their own brand CEO and then a brand marketing director. Um, so, yeah, it, it obviously uh, profitability is, is one of the analysis that would need to be done per brand line. But at this moment in time, with, with a race for flags in the ground and global big global uh, markets like India or Africa or parts of Asia again, the, then the, the more it's seen as the more uh, brands in that portfolio are, are seen as advantageous. But if you look at what all the um, Procter & Gamble or um, Danone or any of the bigger companies post-COVID, they've done exactly what you just described, which was rationalization and and really gone back to focusing on, on what they're profitable lines are rather than just uh having a, a wide plethora um of large large numbers because yeah. if you ask the consumer that i i don't believe there's they they know every single brand to, to in in some of them it, it could be to the point where 
even the sales teams who are out selling probably don't know every single brand that is in that stable. Play me. That's a worrying thought. I mean, well, also Lilt, RIP yeah. as well. Um, but that's a, that's an important point, actually, is why is brand management different in hotels and, and hospitality than it is in FMCG? And what I mean by that is what we were taught on, on the Pro Fritzen course, and we knew anyway, really, was... Brand management is actually you being like the PL owner. So you're like a mini MD, but in hospitality, say you're a brand person, you kind of are seen as maybe the conscience of the brand. You're maybe seen as, you know, the the the, the look and feel guardian, you know, the culture guardian, whatever. But why would you not be the the PL holder? Well, I, I think you potentially are. I think what the the narrative that would come back if you were to speak to the chief execs of these four four larger companies is, is they'd probably be describing them as as future future proof. So, if their example were to say, you know, this is this is brand X at the moment that brand's bringing in a hundred million of revenue. But we believe there's a runway for 49 more of these around the globe, mm. at which point it would be a 1.5 billion business. So the day-to-day profitability of that brand potentially is not, not the focus, but the, the future growth and where those hotels could fit and mm. how it would be positioned compared to some of the competitors and the story that would be told would probably be what they're looking at rather than on a day like today, it's not a profit. It's not bringing in profit this quarter to the bottom line. Yeah, no, true. I think I'm, I'm thinking, especially in the restaurant sphere, if you're head of brand, you know, you're getting nowhere near chats about pricing. You're getting nowhere near chats about distribution, you know, and things like that. You know, it's kind of, you're, you're, it's a, it's a lot light, lighter than that. You know, it's very, very much Diet Coke versus what Ritson's saying are, are true a true brand manager is. Hey, I'm Sam from Airship and Toggle. You might remember me from hospitality marketing campaigns such as Jetpack Santa, Toggle Time 2, or anything that involves Chico from The X Factor. Well, now we're delighted to be supporting the latest series of the Supersonic Hospitality Marketing Podcast and the wonderful human that is Mark McCulloch. Airship is the CRM system built specifically for hospitality, which integrates with over 100 tech platforms, including Mojo. Hey, guys, fancy seeing you here. And allows you to build personalized, automated marketing journeys for your customers. Toggle is the hospitality gift card platform that integrates with your existing EPOS and allows you to sell physical and digital cards, as well as experiences, retail items, tickets, and more, both online and in venue. Both platforms are currently available half price as part of our budget-proof campaign as we aim to support our sector the best way we know how. You can learn more at airship.co.uk or use toggle.com or you can just drop me an email at sam at airship.co.uk. A creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish Restaurant of the Year Sugarboat to Tip Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, 
Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com. Um, and then just, just going back then, so in terms of you getting to where you are now, which is, A, hats off, I think you're the most connected man I've ever met in my life. You just pop up every two minutes on LinkedIn. That you, It's brilliant to see, but you're just like, well, yeah, you know, it's him as well. So I think that's, you know, it'd be interesting to see that because I think networking's a, a huge part of, of this. Um, but also, in terms of going back to Hospitality Rising, you are potentially a poster child because you went to university to do, you know, catering management and, and, and all the rest of it coming through. So what, what sort of took you there then? How did that all work? Well, I'm, I'm actually a third generation hotelier. So my, my grandfather, uh, Ivor Walters, sadly lost uh, my father's mum who passed away on a Christmas day when when he was 16, when they were in Wales and he was a retailer. So he was running a shop in, in a town called Tredega. Uh, and they took the decision that they were going to move to Australia. So he packed up the shop. Sold, I think he sold the shop, packed up a Morris Minor Traveller, moved to Chandler's Ford just outside of Southampton. And I think they were waiting for the one pound ferry to Melbourne Yep. And in between, he had met another Welsh guy from the town who'd opened up a, a hotel in Bournemouth. So my granddad then decided they weren't going to Australia anymore. Oh. Buy, buy a, a guest house in Bournemouth called the Beverly, uh-huh. which I believe had 16 rooms officially. And, and I think it had unofficial rooms as well, <laughs> paid, paid for holidays and so on. Yeah. And then my dad as a teenager worked in this, this guest house for my granddad uh and my granddad's then uh second wife olive was a fantastic cook uh-huh. so she'd cook all the breakfasts and the lunches and and dad, i think dad was more of a waiter and would help out with housekeeping and so on he then um did the what was i don't think it's bournemouth maybe it was on the site of what is now bournemouth university but it was a a catering college back then and he he thought after a short amount of time, I'm learning a lot more than I need to be able to run this or help with this, you know, this 16-room guest house in Bournemouth. So upon finishing, he moved up to London and became a trainee with Grand Metropolitan. Mm-hmm. So at the time, there was Trust House Forte and there were Grand Metropolitan who were the largest and, and had the training programs and the civic far more sophistication, I think, than any other hotels did. And he followed a HR track. So he eventually then became fairly senior with IHG. Um, and, and then we as kids used to, during half term, be able to move from um, Wales to stay in these lovely intercontinental hotels in London, uh, sometimes overseas. So we, we used to get to stay at the Carlton Intercontinental and in Paris, in some of the some of the hotels as well, and and from the consumer side, it's obviously a very glamorous and yeah, yeah. and fun industry. So I then, when I was looking at university places, I could have done a a business admin degree or something fairly generic, but looking at the modules of hotel and catering at the University of Surrey, they all had 
the different functions and the business admin element, but obviously were tailored to the to the hotel industry. So then I was at the University of Surrey, and on on day four, the um, there was a course about already they're talking about potential employers, etc., post university. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about um, the fast track program at, at Intercontinental, which allows you to do an MBA and become a general manager within eight to ten years, move around, etc. And, and sure enough, my father had been instrumental in putting that together with IHG. Oh wow! So, so, and then the next day, someone someone uh, prints out the Intercon pages where, at the time, my dad was on the website. <laughs> no, is this your dad? Can he get me a job doing X, Y, Z? So, so my my brothers aren't in the industry, but obviously, I was fortunate in that he'd he'd had a career and continues to have a career, but he was very well respected and well liked. Um, and and to have the university on you know such an early stage put that forward as really one of the the best programs to try and aspire to. Maybe immensely proud, and obviously, as the the firstborn son, that that was really the primary driver behind going going to hospitality yeah. school. Nice. And then from there, what what happened? What was the first few jobs like? What you know, and what were you hoping to do? So post post graduation, it included a year in industry, which I studied at the or I, I worked as a rooms division trainee at the Mayfair Intercontinental, which had a, a female general manager called Christine Engel, who had followed up uh, from a previous female general manager who was Dagmar Woodward. Um, and, and Christine was an exceptional leader. And she just kept kept a three-word mantra, which was attention to detail. Yeah. So even, you know, this was back in 1999, but whether it was spelling or it was appearance or... It's, it's just got so many uses, right? Attention yeah, to detail. Yeah, it yeah. just makes you, it makes you think, uh, think a lot more proactively when you're doing something just to, to check it is right. And in a luxury environment, there's obviously lots of touch points and scope to get things slightly wrong. But her mantra was attention to detail. The hotel was frequented by lots of bankers and business travelers but also lots of entertainment business as well, because it had a penthouse suite with a private elevator. Uh, so it, it was a fantastic sandwich course. It was very formal, though. You know, I had to wear this ugly green jacket, this this paisley waistcoat. Even though I was in a non-customer-facing reservations office, it was still very formal. You know, mm. the concierge was a Mr. Keen, even though, you know, <laughs> The general manager would say, "Call me by first name," but the concierge, you'd have to have to use Mister. Yeah. So when I graduated, I didn't know necessarily what what I wanted to do. If I were to stay in hospitality, which function would it be in? Would it always be as formal as that? What what really was important? It, it certainly wasn't the formality. Mm. But then I did a master's in marketing in Wales, and and then every course. All the coursework and the dissertation and everything I did was again linked to hospitality. Right. So <laughs> post that, I got a job with my hotels, mm-hmm. which was a uh, a funky boutique hotel company. 
based on uh, feng shui design. I was told to take my tie off on day two. I was told. (laughs) So it it was far more of a relaxed.com type approach than the formality I was used to. But then I went from there to the Langham, which was back to formality again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where's the Langham again? Is that the one next to BBC? Absolutely. So the Langham, the Langham, uh, I I spent a couple of years at my hotels as a marketing executive. Um, We, we had a, I had a fantastic boss, a gentleman called Patrick Veneland, who was a uh, Swedish gentleman. Um, He really empowered me a lot and he trusted me to do work on a lot. And uh, it, it was a great first role really. But then having done the marketing exec role, the advice from my father and other people was, well, sales is very important in hotels, B2B sales. So you need to get some experience and you need to to touch more than one market segment. So the Langham opportunity arose and uh, it was was a fantastic time for the hotel because they'd just taken the Hilton badge off. So it was a standalone property. Mm but they had an amazingly formidable executive leadership team that was like the who's who of the global hotel world. So they had a gentleman or managing director, Duncan Palmer, who'd worked for Mandarin Oriental in many markets and had been at the Sukhothai in Bangkok. They had Diana Banks as the director of sales and marketing who had just positioned and opened the Grove as London's golf resort and yeah. so on. They had Tim Marsden, who was the resident manager, and he previously had been the regent Hong Kong. Ingeborg Simon, the head of housekeeping, had also been at the regent Hong Kong. And then a, a tall Dutch gentleman, Stein Cuppins, as the F&B head. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stein was the main reason why I ended up in Dubai after the hang Wow. And then just with the Langham, I mean, what what were the the, the the learnings and what were the, the teachings and what were the kind of hacks, you know, in terms of running that level of a luxurious hotel? Did, I mean, what did you pick up, you know, just in terms of standards and, you know, how they laid things out and, and all that stuff? Well, when I talk about the formality, I, I had gone out and... Um, and I bought a number of shirts and ties and, and suits and so on, because obviously going from my hotel, the, Lang- the Langham was slightly different. And <laughs> day, day two, I, I can't remember if it was, it was some kind of check shirt and, uh, and, and tie. Anyway, Kathleen O'Flynn, who, who was a Welsh lady who was very much like a, a mentor for me at the Langham and sadly passed away just when I moved with Hilton to Asia. Yeah. Um, she she took me aside and she just said, uh, you know, have, have you got other shirts? Like, not not that they had to be white, but ideally they didn't have checks in them. So I said, oh, I've just bought five shirts like this from, you know, they, they all had the, the shirts and the tie attached. It, it wasn't Burton, but it, it certainly wasn't Savile Row or anything particularly <laughs> sophisticated. She goes, well, so she said, I'll just take them back, take them all back. And, and just buy white or blue or whatever. And it was before the days of mobile phone, right? Where you could just go, is this one okay? Is this not okay? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I just went went back to the shops and bought, obviously, these more basic shirts and ties that weren't 
weren't going to cause any particular offence to anyone and were in keeping with the Langham environment. And, and the reason why that had happened, I think, was Stephen McGovern, who's, who's a great guy, and he, he heads up sales at the Stafford in London, he'd been on a sales trip with Duncan to Moscow. And I think he had worn some pretty Larry shirts over the course of the week. So I think Duncan Palmer was just coming down on the sales team shirts and had obviously arrived the next day. And, uh, and someone has said, Oh, you know, he's wearing a blue check shirt or whatever. So, but, but in terms of the sales and marketing team, it, it was, uh, not intimidating because everyone was friendly, but, but there was a, there was certainly a lot of experience. And the accents and the, the people's class was, was, very, was very evident through how they would speak. Right. So not, not, not necessarily high, how Hyacinth Bouquet would aspire to speak would probably how it sounded a bit in, in the office. So a, a Welsh accent probably was, was fairly, was fairly new in there. But in terms of learnings, there, there were just a ton of learnings and, uh, most of it was through proactivity that was whether that was the setting of appointments whether that was trying to do as much entertainment as is possible whether it was joining and learning with some sales agencies that we'd uh, employed in certain markets so probably for about two and a half years every other saturday i'd be at the hotel hosting a dinner wow so I do the job Monday through Friday. We'd probably have drinks after work Wednesday or Thursday with clients. And then Friday, there would always, we'd always drink at a pub called the Phoenix. And that would have like 50 to 60 people from the land. I know the Phoenix. Yeah. It's, um, that's on the way to, uh, one of the, uh, I, I know exactly where you are. Just past across Regent Street, isn't it? It's uh, very is close it, to Hanover, um, Hanover Square. Cavendish Square. Cavendish Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. a downstairs, right? Absolutely. I used to do a lot of good gigs in there. Yeah, so we would always be there. And and then Saturday, we would have a lot of uh, clients that would meet, would book meetings and groups and, and other business to the hotel. And they would come. We, we wouldn't typically be fully booked on a Saturday. We'd be maybe 80 or 90% occupied usually. But we probably have six to eight rooms that we would do a fam trip. So they get a comp room and then I'd host them for dinner with a lady called Kath Cousins, who was our northern sales agent. And yeah, honestly, did that for, for two and a half years. So we we would really talk them through how the hotel is going to change because Dr. Lowe and the ownership group were going to be spending upwards of 67 million. 60, 70 million over a three to five year period. So, so things started coming like the Infinity Suite, then the Artesian Bar, then the Landau restaurant, which is now Michel Rue Jr.'s at the, the Landau. And, and it was really taking people on that journey and talking through what, what, how that hotel was going to evolve over that time frame. And how did the sales and marketing differ from hotels to events? to restaurants to, I mean, were you covering all of that? No, my, my title would, would have been meetings and event sales at the mm-hmm. time. So if you were a, a Diageo with a corporate account, you would have had a corporate sales manager manage your account. You would probably have had, you know, thousands of room nights over the course of the year 
and they would marry, make sure that the, the travelers that come from that company are looked after, that their relationship is strong. Then they'd manage the RFP process. So if rates are going to be increased, what, what's a reasonable increase? You know, what can they, what can they get? Mm. And then from a leisure and a transient perspective, a lot of that strategy was driven by PR. And a lot, a, a, almost all of it would have uh, been the brainchild of Diana Banks. Yeah, amazing. And, and her and Duncan Palmer then would spend a tremendous amount of time on a plane going around the world to key source markets like the US, but also to emerging sales uh, sales markets like Brazil, like Russia, like Australia. And, and Diana's view really was everyone's going every fortnight to the US we're not making much difference because it's so <laughs> all the London hotels are going there, mm. but hardly any were going to Australia and we had a Langham in Melbourne. So even though she'd have to travel a lot further, the Langham in Australia obviously developed a, a, a much larger following and a reputation because she spent so many years going and, and spreading the word down there. That's really smart. I mean, I, I think, you know, from what can, Red Carnation for a bit, you know, with, with the amazing Jonathan Raggett and the team, um, you know, they they were very much like that. You know, they are, you know, going all around the world. I mean, obviously there's hotels around the world, but, you know, I, I think that's an important message, you know, for, for anyone listening as well. You know, if the marketing alone, digital marketing alone, offline marketing alone, you know, it's not enough, you know, so definitely, and it, it's about generating that business. And I think, one of the things definitely in restaurants that restaurants always talk about for shoulder periods and they never actually do much about is, you know, going out to those other markets and making sure you're getting that traffic that's coming in to go to you. And if I think about where I'm sitting right now, I've got the Regency restaurant just across the road and pre-COVID, I mean, honestly, you couldn't get a table there for buses of Chinese, you know, come, coming over, you know, Chinese tourists and, and Japanese tourists and things like that. So again, really going out and fighting for that sale is 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 a really smart thing um you know to make sure you've got that international travel coming in and and i think the the other very important thing was uh with duncan diana's experience that that originally the hotel was going to be refurbished by a hirsch betner which is a, a company that had been selected by the owners and they'd come in with preliminary drawings and so on and they met with them and they weren't impressed, I think, with the design. I think they didn't mind. But I think operationally, they hadn't really given much thought as to how things would work. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that whatever that anyway, they, they didn't think it was going to be worth what, what the contract obviously was set out. So they pushed back. So the, the whole refurbishment project as a result, I think, got delayed certainly by a year, if not by more. But, but became much better because the company that they did use, Richmond International, did a, a fabulous job. But again, that would have been a very tough decision to, to take. And uh, Hirsch Bettner obviously have got tons of clients and, and everything else. But if you look at the, the Artesian or you look at the Infinity Suite and all of the things that Duncan and Diana spearheaded, mm. They're, they were class. They're still class on a day like today. You know, Artesian still wins world's best bar at, at, at awards. And, uh, you know, it, 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 that was a David Collins design. But Oh, yeah, was they, it? They, 
Yeah, yeah, their, vi- their, vi- their vision and, and what they put in, in place was, uh, yeah, complete, complete contrast to how the property historically had been as a Langham Hilton. Because I'm sure David Collins did a couple of preps. He could and, well have done. He did the blue bar at the Barclay, which when Artesian had opened was was one of the most famous hotel bars. He did a lot at Madonna's house. Right. Um and, and obviously after that, the, the David Collins studio did a lot of prestigious bars and restaurants. It, he sadly passed away, I think, about four or five years after the Artesian opened. But but when you look at the menu, the all of the design, um, you know, the, the F&B team, again, headed up with Stein. There's a gentleman called Conor O'Leary, who's MD at Glen Eagles now, who, again, was a, a key part of that Langham team. Um, and the money that Dr. Lowe spent couldn't have been spent any better. Yeah. No, Dave, I mean, David Collins was, was really revered. And I remember it was quite a different look for Pret. And I think some people were really on board with it and some people were were, were not so sure. But um, no, he definitely did. I'm just looking up now. Yeah, he definitely did. So um, yeah, because I think Pretz at the time, maybe there was that washing machine inside of a washing machine sort of look, as we sort of called it. And it was all sort of silver and, you know, and kind of riveted and all that. And then, you know, I, I think they took on that softer look that you know now with the you know, it's got a red leather and the, the, the nice spotlight. It's a lot more wood and natural and and things like that, you know, um, that, that was really cool. And then, you know, just talking about, again, we're back to those three words, attention to detail, and, and that's how these places have got standards, you know, that they, they, they don't compromise. And I remember hearing a story about the Apple Store in Covent Garden, and um, I think Steve Jobs came over, or one of, one of his execs, or it was him, and... It was Covent Garden one, and he had on him a swatch of the floor, and he walked around the floor, and there was this area, or a lot of it, wasn't matching this swatch, and he canned it, and it cost whatever it cost, and it delayed it by, you know, six months or more, and that's what these people do, you know, and it'll pay off because people will just notice, you know, um, which, which I think is quite amazing. Absolutely. Um, and, and there's a hotel blueprint to those Apple stores because the uh, the service standards and uh, the, the work that they did when starting to go into retail all came through Ritz-Carlton. Oh, so, they, oh. so they spent lots of time speaking with Ritz-Carlton as to their credo and how guests should be treated and values and, and so on. So, a lot of the certainly the initial training in North America, uh, what was with a view to how Ritz Carlton did it in the hotel space. That makes sense. Do you know what I saw a video on on social? I think it was last night actually, and it was saying the clever psychological trick that Apple stores have on you. So did you know this? So to to make you feel ownership and want to buy something. So basically, with the screens that they've all got, you know, on the laptops and different, I'm not sure how this would work on an iPad right enough, but certainly laptops, they put them between something like 60 and 70 degrees, which the way, I mean, you're standing up right now, you're, you're being very good and doing your Scandi thing, standing up. So when you're standing up in the Apple store, 
you can't actually get a good, it's just alien to you being at this 60, 70 degrees. So what you do is you touch it to move it to then, and then that gives you an instant connection. It gives you the tactile nature of it. And then actually the, the signals are that you form a bond and some ownership with this machine, which then will take you down the path to buy. I mean, come on. That's, that's fantastic, isn't it? The, um, what was one of the things in clothing stores they try to do, right, is to touch touch the clothing yeah. when you go in because the probability of you buying something goes from whatever percent to whatever percent the, yeah. the longer you're in the store and if they get you to touch stuff. So, no, that that's fantastic. But also that iPad and, and how you would pay for stuff and not having a till to a degree at Apple then subsequently influenced the hotel industry and certainly in the boutique segment, and, and the best proponent of this, the upper house in Hong Kong, you would check in and you'd have a welcome drink and the person would be on their iPad, but there's not a formal desk mm. between you and them yeah. um, because they had everything everything on the iPad. So if you're a VIP, I think you, you're even checking in in the room rather than downstairs in, in the lobby. Um, but yeah, again, there was a, a lot of retail learnings from i think zephora and from apple which which saw that traditional reception desk get thrown away in, in some trendy environments yeah i mean i I've, I've had such disappointment with hotels since very first world problems but like in terms of when you rock up and the promises there of technology working so for example went to zedwell and piccadilly was using that as a kind of cheap commuter hotel. Very good for that, by the way. But went in and you've got a few staff milling about, but you've got all the thing that's checking automatically. You're great. So you check, you try to check in. And anyway, it had a stumble, couldn't get going. Then they were like, oh, can we just see your thing? Right, it's on my um, phone. No signal. <laughs> when you got in and it, you know just these and I think I, I remember we, we did work for Ibis years ago at We're Spectacular and I remember going to one of theirs I think and it had a WhatsApp facility and actually I think the C containers has the same and you go in and you, you know and I thought I'm going to try this so I think I ordered a gin and tonic or something I'm still waiting for my gin and tonic, you know? Um, so, you know, the, so the, the tech gets put in, but, but people just don't get trained, you know? And it must, it is difficult though. It's difficult to, to, to manage all that. Well, yeah, it's interesting, right? It, whether it's uh, in restaurants or hotels, that, that conundrum between hospitality and technology assisting without degrading from that hospitality experience and, uh, yeah, it's tough if you're in a hotel, like you said, and an app or WhatsApp doesn't doesn't work. I don't know how long you, how long since you were last in a hotel, but if you ring that, if you ring any number from most most uh, most hotels I've been in the last twelve to twenty four months, the phone just rings and rings. Whether it's whether it's housekeeping or reception yeah. or room service, that the days where it used to be within three rings or yeah. and answered instantly. Um, because it certainly it's tough to reach people on phones, um, unless I'm just staying in, in the wrong hotels these days. Yeah, it could be. I've just got a real bugbear about booking.com at the moment because I've been booking hotels for staying in London for like future this year. And 
you know, I know it says it's uncancellable, but when you're giving them three months' notice, you're thinking, do me a favour, and they just won't. You no. know, it's unbelievable. Um, so I've got a real problem with the standard at the moment. So annoyed, but never mind. And then just thinking about, uh, you know, the, the the rest of your career. And so you had bigger and better roles, um, you know, in, in hotels. And then obviously you're doing what you're doing now, which I'd love to talk about because a lot of the brands will not be household names to a lot of people, you know, um, you know, across the country and, and, and beyond. Um, so just be good to talk about that as well. And then I guess you're straddling now from sort of sales to then into strategy to then into full-blown, you know, directorships and, and, and you know, really looking after the, the whole operation. Um, so that'd be interesting just to find out those wee bits as well, just to finish that bit off. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a bit of a condensed version of, of my my moves overseas. But um, I, I was fortunate a number of times at, at the Langham, but the, the, the one trip I took, I, I was sent with like a day's notice to Dubai. And um, a colleague, who, who, a lovely lady, Sarah Parry, had a family emergency who couldn't make the trip. So I went. Um, and on the first evening, I had dinner with Stein, who had been the F&B director at the Langham, but was then running the F&B for the one and only Royal Mirage, mm. which is uh, still, in my opinion, the best, the best resort in Dubai. It's where if I could get a, a free weekend, that's where I'd like rather than any of <laughs> that. That maybe the bit the bigger or larger resorts, but anyway, we had a, a lovely dinner in Tangine, the Moroccan restaurant, and he'd been there a, a, a couple of years, and he just said, you know, if you're serious about your career and progressing your career, you need to be international, and and you know, if you're going to be international, everything that is is happening is happening here in Dubai, you know, whether it's hotels from designer brands like Armani, Versace, Missoni, and so on mega mega resorts like atlantis uh almost every brand like mandarin oriental conrad uh four seasons anyway so so i went back and and i said well yeah i think i think rather than staying in london and you know it, it would be good to consider some opportunities in in the middle east luckily deb's my then girlfriend now wife was was supportive and uh, then that, that fast forward February 2008, moved out to Dubai with a company that were Kuwaiti. And they'd taken this building, which was, <laughs> the location was number one Sheikh Zayed Road, which <laughs> is pretty much the most prestigious address in Dubai. Wow. They just bought Aston Martin, the, the, hope, the car company, and they had other parcels of land in Dubai including Okeana on the World Islands. So their plan was to open what was called the Monarch Dubai, which is where I was based. Then they were going to open Media One in Dubai Media City six months later, which did happen, to be fair to them. Uh, but Aston Martin and the Okeana, the world, all got wiped out because they got really badly affected by the GFC. So whereas Dubai had been soaring and punching record numbers between up to 2007, come October of the global financial crisis, uh, I, I actually signed Lehman Brothers three days before they went into Chapter oh, 11 wow. for uh, a corporate rate agreement for Dubai, which was like 1,500 room nights. And, uh, and then obviously Chapter 11 happened and... 
Yeah, it, it was really tough time. When people talk about people abandoning it, abandoning Ferraris and leaving condos and everything else, that, that was all true because you can't cash or you can't bounce a, a check in Dubai. You'd be in debtor prison. So people that have become overstretched thinking that the market could only ever go upwards, they they all got, got out of Dubai and left. So fortunately, we, we were able to, to keep the monarch open through the revenues from the office tower. And then our food and beverage outlets started to open. There was a fantastic concept called Oku opened, which was Japanese. We had a nightclub on the roof. We had uh, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse opened. So, so you know, it became a hotel that then could go head to head with Shangri-La, Emirates Towers, the Fairmont. And, um, I then was approached by Emirates Palace in Abu Dhabi. So had a, going from trying to keep the lights on at the Monarch, which was all, always high pressure because it, it was the market was really, really tough. Mm. Um, but then again, that spoke to Debs about moving to Abu Dhabi. And uh, she said, well, why can't you commute? Because we just got a nice condo on the palm. So for the first six months I commuted, but it's the most dangerous road in the world. So after six months, we moved to Abu Dhabi. Deb's got a fantastic job as the assistant executive assistant to the CEO for HSBC Middle East. And then I got a call from Diana Banks saying, how do you fancy moving to Asia? Oh. So, so luckily Deb's agreed. We sold all this Ikea furniture that was like three weeks old. Can I just say Pearl Debs, by the way, as well? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I'm very, very, very lucky. Needs a medal. Because in that role, she had, uh, if she pressed print, someone went to the printer and brought the printed paper to her desk. Oh, wow. And she was in charge of all the drivers and the, the coffee the coffee boy. And yeah, she, she was loving life there. But yeah, very fortunate. Then we moved to Phnom Penh, uh, looking after the sales and marketing for the Raffles Hotel Le Royale and the Raffles Grand Hotel de Angkor in Siem Reap, mm-hmm. which is where Angkor Wat is located. Mm-hmm. So we, we had a fantastic time in Cambodia. We made loads of great friends, uh, and business was tremendous. We, we posted record levels of business in Phnom Penh, largely down to conferences that were taking place and U.S. Embassy. So we had President Obama. We had... Hillary Clinton stayed twice. We had uh, um, Madeleine Albright. We had General Petraeus. And in CM Reap, we were very fortunate that a key competitor had closed for a full refurbishment and to become the Park Hyatt uh, CM Reap. So we managed to take almost all their business whilst they were closed. So really fortuitous timing to be in Cambodia. Yeah. And then we discovered we had twin twins on the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Cambodia so, off the cards. Well, it's fantastic place, but in terms of, well, it, it's still developing, right? So mm. hospitals and, and then when the babies would arrive, we just took the decision that we'd need to be in. We narrowed it down to Dubai or Singapore. Mm-hmm. And then I, I got a great role with Hilton in the Asia Pacific office for Singapore. And uh, the twins were born in Wales early. 
And then I had the task of finding a condo, furnishing a condo, nothing, nothing as dramatic as childbirth, but with its own uh, yeah, yeah. its own particular particular uh, pressures. And then the full family moved out, and we were in Singapore seven years. Singapore's fun, right? Yeah, it's a great place. It's yeah. uh, it's very safe. It's it's perfect for families. You you get friends from many different nations. Uh, great food at every price point. So from the hawker stalls to the, you know, Michelin three star, everything in between. And it's a, you know, the airport's the best in the world, and you can get to get around Asia fairly fairly easily from there. Yeah. Well, someone, someone did, they were being a little bit naughty, but they did describe it to me as um, Milton Keynes of Asia. <laughs> no chance. No chance. I think it was seen, uh, people used to call it Singapore. Oh, think, yeah. Uh, but but then um, they developed Sentosa, they developed MBS, Marina Bay Sands, mm. lots of restaurants and Club Street. And uh, you've got the Keys, you've got Clark Key. You've Keys got are amazing. Key. So... Yeah. You know, I, th- I think historically, before these developments happened, people maybe saw it as a two-night, no more location. But when you the the top fifty Asia restaurant list is coming out, it's coming out as we speak. Yeah. And if there aren't more than ten in Singapore, I'd be surprised. Yeah. No, definitely. I I was out in two thousand six, and um, yeah, really enjoyed the keys. And you know, like it was really funny though the the team and. Singapore were adamant to take me to there's like a, there was like a London pub yeah and one of the keys it was like called the Victoria or something I can't remember what it was called but um yeah and they were like you know the penny I, black in oh, both that, teams, it, might, it might have been and then there were seven London prides so they were like desperate for me to have a London pride I'm like I love London pride but I was like it's the last thing that I want you know I want I want something authentic but the the pepper crab and all that was just out of this world, you know, it was phenomenal, phenomenal. So yeah, that was that was really um, the, the the trajectory and the travels. And then um, at the the beginning of COVID, my my role with Hilton came to an end, and we stayed out there for the twins to finish school. I was very fortunate that uh, my father's organisation had a, a number of projects and assignments I could work for him just to not necessarily a, a, a role that made sense on paper, but would at least bring in some some money and be able to stay in Singapore, yeah. hopefully for the market to pick up. But the market didn't, didn't pick up. And in the interim, a colleague, Sean Wooden, who I'd worked with at Hilton, said, well, if you come back to the UK, I've got a role for you. Um, and that that progressed to me being able to do that role for the first three months in Singapore, and uh and, and that that's the role I'm, I'm doing now so there was a bit of a hilton <laughs> move to focus brands so that the president jim holthauser had previously been head of brands for hilton mm. and sean who i work for and is based down on the south coast of of the uk in between southampton and portsmouth had spent three decades with hilton in senior and more more senior progressive roles and he was due to be moving into a role in North America. Uh, but unfortunately, COVID had, had seen that opportunity um, moved away as well. So that would have been in April last year. Mm. Uh, oh, sorry, the year before, April 21. 
and then we moved to Dulwich in uh, July 21. Nice. And so tell us about Focus Brands then, and also how did you approach that job? So when you go into the job, what's what's your first 90 days like? You know, what do you... What do you do? Because it's a big old job, you know, Director of Operations International for, you know, a very, very wide bunch of regions. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And, and obviously, you, you've you asked about the, the, diff- the diff- differences and similarities between hotels and restaurants. And and obviously, the first 90 days in, in any job is important, hence the, the number of books that, that are written or articles on the oh. subject. And it, it, it's obviously about momentum and, and small wins and listening exercises and everything else. But I think it's it's a bit more difficult when you're in a remote world because you don't you don't get to sp- spend a lot of time socialising or having the the conversations as to how someone weekend has gone or their interests and everything else because almost all of your activity is is over team Zoom or or another another video software but but in terms of getting acquainted it's obviously a very broad in, uh, industry with massive learnings so again from a, a podcast perspective that that's invaluable because you can then listen to to some great podcasts that can be uh, specially directed at QSR or or broad Broadcasts that are more about F and B in general. Um, there are many books that I've read, uh, and um, there are people you obviously in my network I can speak to and, and find out as to what you know what what makes the industry tick. And again, getting acquainted with partners that have signed development deals with focus brands, and what we need to do to to make those development plans come to fruition essentially. So I would say in terms of researching and reading and understanding the industry, it, it, it's, it continues to be a process. And I think the, the interesting part of QSR is that there's a bit of, bit of an intersection with real estate and site selection and, uh, and really understanding the retail industry as well as just the, the restaurant and F&B component. And is it, um, is it franchises mainly that you partner with and, and sell as a lot of money sites as well? No, it's uh, it's a hundred percent franchised. So we have two two different models. So Auntie Anne's in the UK, uh, we have a master franchise partner called Freshly Baked. And what is Auntie Anne's for those that don't know? Oh, sorry. Let me uh, let me pull back a little. So Focus Brands is a large company. I believe we've got. Oh, in excess of five billion sales um, as an organization. And it, in the international side, we have around 1600 units. And the brand, the, the largest component is Cinnabon, which is our cinnamon roll brand, which was started in uh, 1985 in Seattle. And uh, Auntie Anne's is a pretzel brand, which was started by Anne in uh, Pennsylvania. In a farmer's market, and uh, we have Jamba, which is a juice brand, started in California, but really got its big head start by being one of the most loved juice brands in Palo Alto, and then getting backers by from lots of the dot-com uh, investors and Howard Schultz from Starbucks. And essentially, it's a, uh, 
a bowls and uh, smoothie brand. We have Moe's, which is a Mexican concept. And we have Schlotsky's and McAllister Deli in the uh, the restaurant and sandwich space. And uh, you dropped the juice from Jamba, right? Yeah, we're just Jamba now. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I'm sure, was it not in The Sopranos? Could be. Dunkin' Donuts features a lot in The Sopranos. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I didn't see Tony drinking too many smoothies. No. But I, if, I, he, I think... if he had been, Jamba would have been the, the largest uh, brand. Yeah, well, I think I think they, they sort of went and shook them down. And then I think also there was, um, I'm sure it was in Curb as well. I'm sure it was in Curb Enthusiasm. Um, you know, and then, and then yeah. I've, I've missed an ice cream brand out, which was Carvel, which was the first soft serve ice cream globally. Wow. And Tom Carvel, the gentleman who started it, a lot of the, the franchise metrics and, and workings were actually established by him back in the day so uh so yeah again with your first 90 day question it's really trying to understand the competition in those segments uh how the pnls look like that what would make a successful site and what what uh, and ultimately how they would need to be tailored to some of the markets for new market entry and how do you spend your weekly i mean how do you divide up your time doing what you're doing you know what what do you focus on? Um, well, for the company, for the accounts that we've got uh, relationships with, we, we've normally got a standing call with uh, with them on a on a biweekly basis. So there's a lot of calls that that are in to review progress against initiatives. I do diary blocking, so my my week next week is probably already blocked with with what I want to work on. Um, there are different methods in terms of the three, 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 and uh, obviously more formal uh, time blocking. But but probably what what my most of my time is spent currently is with new business development, and that's with calls for potential franchises in different markets across the region. So that that again is mainly done initially over video call. And uh, if the interest is is more genuine and looks like it's got um, potential, then you obviously fly in, have a have a face to face meeting, and and start to get into some of the more commercial details of the deal. I mean, I know you're super well read. I mean, thinking about time blocking, just for for you know people listening, what what are the best hacks for that? You know, because a lot of people are stressed about the diary and they don't manage to, as you say, work on what you want to work on for the good of the company and for the good of yourself. You know, what? what is the 333, et cetera? Well, I, th- I think um, probably the, the the biggest challenge that everyone has right now and one of the best books on the subject is Cal Newport's Deep Work. And it's really not, not necessarily getting too evangelical or that trance-like state where you can get things done. But if you... Well, for example, if I've got a PowerPoint presentation I need to do on a certain subject, and I know it's going to take three two-hour sessions because it's particularly important, I, I would typically address that first thing in the morning. I'd, I'd block the time. Probably it would be in a six to eight slot, and then I'd just put it in my Outlook, and I would know exactly what I'm working on from six till eight. I won't have my social media open. I won't have my phone in the room. 
uh, probably will have some background music, normally classic FM with the the guy from Pointless. Yep. Uh, it's very <laughs> soothing. So yeah. is, uh, I tell you what, another one is a uh, smooth chill. It's very, yeah. very good to work to smooth chill. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then in terms of, obviously, you don't want to get in the habit of doing email all day, but it, it, it is an essential reality. So normally there's a slot three till four that I will block, that I will get back to emails that need to be actioned. And again, the, the bigger tasks that require deep work, again, it's just finding the best and most convenient time to do them where you know you won't be disturbed. Mm. Um, and typically that that tends to be first thing in the morning. And then a lot of the calls that I have are during the day because they are international, so they're across different, different time zones. Mm. And then from probably midday onwards, there's typically projects that I'm working on with our Atlanta head office that will require different functional input. So we'll have a lot of uh, video calls with them, which will almost always be in the afternoon because of the, the time difference between here and Atlanta. And that could be fairly broad again. That could be supply chain. That could be the marketing team. That could be uh, our, we've got a gentleman with three, three decades worth of tenure, Rick Golub, who's a real design superstar. Um, so yeah, that I, I think people from time management can be really artful, and I, certainly I, I'm getting better. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm I've optimized it, but certainly books like Deep Work and understanding that you know your day's output is not how many emails you do, mm. but obviously <laughs> what you can do to to move yourself towards more deals getting signed on the line. So yeah. how can you manage that outlook to to maximize your output? Yeah, I saw a thing today on LinkedIn saying that since 2008, the number of emails that we receive has just gone up like exponentially. And, you know, what what can you do about it? It's crazy. It's crazy. And do you know, it's one of the best tips I ever got from one of my bosses at lastminute.com was unless his name or Martha and Brent's name that ran it is in the, you know, sender, then leave it. And then twice a day have two, two blocks of yeah. you know doing emails for start of the day and end of the day and just do it that way you know that always helped me um however i think with me being a consultant now people seem to be pleased and impressed how quickly you get back and i think uh, it's just a different game when you're the consultant rather than working on the inside um but it is a dangerous precedent to set if people know that you're around on Saturday, you know, Saturday nights and Sunday nights and things like that. You know, it can then creep into your life, can't it? But you know, well, that's it. To, be, to be honest, um, with the organisation Focus Brands, Monday to Fridays, I, I describe as you know that that they are productive. That every minute is pro proactively accounted for, and we we have probably I would say the right number of meetings. There are other organizations where weekends were possibly not as sacred and, uh, and, and <laughs> other American companies, uh, or other companies in general who believe their time zone is the only ones that exist globally. So whether it first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening, you'd, you'd need to, you'd need to attend. Yeah. And again, when I very early on in Singapore, Sean Wooden at Hilton said to me, well, 
this is what you should do in terms of your guidelines. If there's a if there's a call that comes in after nine o'clock in the evening, reject it. If there's a call request that comes in before a bank holiday, reject it. And don't ever do a call anytime on Friday night. So if that's six, seven o'clock, eight mm-hmm. o'clock, you know, reschedule it on on the Monday. And he said you should protect your time that way because uh, you know, otherwise you're professionalism and obligation would see you wanting to do those calls but there has to be a bit of understanding as well as to where people are located and what time is acceptable for mandatory repeat calls yeah and also i like the idea that you know you don't have to be functioning nine to five always you know like i think there's a little bit more flexibility now in a a lot of areas i've got a guy i work with and he's in the uk but he has found that he works best on San Francisco time. No idea why, but he just found that, you know, he, he's problem sleeping and, you know, that kind of stuff. So he, he definitely works a bit better on that. So I was going to say a couple of things then um, to wrap up, because I know you need to go um, time management and all that stuff. I'm, I'm, um, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> well, do you know, it, it, this is such a tricky podcast because there's just so much that I can talk to you about. You know, I, I've got a full list of questions here that I don't even know if I've actually broken the back off. Um, well, whatsoever. I've, I've, it, so maybe I should get a bit more credit on time management in that I did block an extra half hour thinking well, you that, that you might you might need it. So Yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd wither on, or I would anyway. Um, well, the, the couple of things I just had in my mind, which is relating to focus brands then, was just what's the plan for the brands in, you know, the UK, Europe, Africa. Um, the second part was... Just how is it trading in all these different countries? You know, how can you possibly have the knowledge of all these different countries and and, and all that? Um, and then the this the sort of last part I was really interested. You know, what makes a really good franchise partner? Great questions. Well, in terms of the the first part, we have, we have uh, an exciting five year plan that we're probably a couple of years into, and that that's essentially doubling the footprint across the region in terms again that that net unit growth number that we've we've talked about some of our brands um again they they're fairly easy easier to to adapt into a market because we've got experience we've got the supply chain set up we know the equipment that is required we know the locations that make sense uh, others tend to work on an 80 20 rule in that 80% of the menu is probably fixed. 20% requires some local mm-hmm. uh, tweaking and some tailoring to that market. Jamba, for example, I believe we've got around seven new market entries this year. Wow. And that that's already, uh, we're in a number of countries in Asia, but it's still a fairly new brand for focus and having acquired it in 2019. And, and setting it up obviously has required a lot of work from all the functions to ensure that the whole machine is scalable, it's up and running, and that we learn as much as we can from a new market entry and then move on to the next. Um, but yeah, the, the, the doubling is, is, uh, is the North Star. It's what we're all aiming, aiming for. And we need to sell development deals to some key markets like France, like Germany, um, and, and some other markets so that we can make those new store opening numbers and again 
the, the better we do with the new market entries and with our current development deals and the better the, the rollout plan and the profitability and the, the store physical and mental availability becomes, then obviously the, the sales proposition becomes that much stronger. Mm. The second part to your question, Mark, sorry, remind me. Yeah, just in terms of all the countries. So in all of the regions that you operate, you know, obviously I think it's a good trait in a leader to be a bit vulnerable and honest. Not like you can't, I mean, I don't think anyone can possibly know every single country incredibly or every single city or every single, you know, so how, how do you go about that? Well, I think that ties into to question three to a degree, and that that is leaning, leaning, not leaning, but working collaboratively mm. with with key partners. And some some of the tools and resources that we have are fantastic. We have a customer experience center of excellence that does a lot of the consultative visits to the units. But the the strong local operator that has functions and budgets and vision and strong ability to recruit, find good locations, and then terrific uh, terrific customer service that's in line with the brand values, mm. That that's all really part of it. So that, that partner selection, when you're considering people that want to sign development deals, becomes a very important part of it because we should know a lot about the markets that we're in, and certainly we do for most, mm. but there are also lots of local nuances, and that's what we'd we'd work with the local partners on. Yeah, and then, um, you know, just in terms of, uh, you know, what makes a good partner, because when I was at Yosushi, we had some franchise agreements, and, you know, it was a bit hit and miss, you know, some of the strategic partners that we had. Um, you know, and then distance can be one of the, the biggest problems, right? And then also it's a bit like uh, you're dating a bit, you know, so in the start, it's all lovey-dovey and everything's amazing. And then, you know, as, as time goes on, they start ripping apart your menu. We know best. They start compromising on your brand, um, you know, and it's a recipe for disaster. So, you know, how does, how does that go, um, you know, in terms of, finding you know is there a blueprint for a perfect franchise partner well i think if we talk about the uk i'd, I'd spoken a, a little bit about um the two different models at play in the uk so freshly baked have the master agreement for anti ans in the uk they're best based in chesham mm -hmm. and uh if anyone listening is interested in an anti ans they they do individual units that that they sub franchise so we manage that relationship with uh, the guys at freshly baked uh, they're based in Chesham, which is Buckinghamshire. Mm -hmm. And in terms of meetings, that that's quarterly. We speak weekly. I'm seeing them this evening in Chiswick at Paramount Pictures because there, there's a movie premiere for uh, a movie that Auntie Anne's has partnered with. Oh, so, say what movie so that, that's fantastic. I don't know too much about ah. uh, uh, how the, the partnership has come about, but... They've also done television advertising when supporting a, a new unit in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not only social or digital. So, you know, they're looking at different aspects. But the relationship, I think, is, again, it, it's it's people. It's being honest. It's being transparent. It's having alignment. And then the second group that we work with in the UK are EG Group. So EG Group are the, the ESA brothers based in Blackburn. 
They're the largest franchises of KFC. They have Burger King. They have uh, Couplins. They obviously have Leon, Cinnabon, and Cinnabon opened with them originally in Blackburn at one of their petrol uh, stations. Mm. And they've tried many different formats in a very quick space of time. So they've done drive-through. They used Cinnabon uh, in probably half a dozen Asda when they just bought Asda. So we've got them in Milton Keynes, Leighton, Walsall. um, And they're tremendous to work with. They have a brand manager. And again, the relationship that we have with them is driven through people. It's through regular visits. We originally were going to be opening a large number in a short space of time. And we've moved that back slightly. But still, the EG team have great marketeers, uh, Samantha and Lorna, who are based in Blackburn. They have wonderful brand managers in Louise and Dan. And the relationship and and the initiatives that we work on are obviously all for the the greater good of the brand. And this year, in, in relation to the openings, the majority are likely to be in strategic locations in in shopping malls. So the next three to four weeks, we should be opening in Westfield, which which will be a, a great location. And uh, again, is probably more traditionally how Cinnabon has been positioned. Yeah. Well, we've got an Auntie Anne's here, actually, in Brighton. We've got one up in Churchill Square. So, um, But yeah, in America, uh, Auntie Anne's had a fabulous social media manager. Um, can't remember her name. But she was always a joy on social. And it was just one of those, she had her own following as well. But she, you know, sort of mixed it up with work messaging and things like that. So, yeah, she was absolutely fabulous. So, the last couple of things then were, one, just in terms of sales and marketing for anyone listening, just any thoughts, tips, best advice you've had and that kind of thing. And then uh, what's next for you? Yes, yeah, so I, th- I think you'd, you'd put, um, and I guess that there's a lot of material for large companies and large budgets. And I, and I think you said, what, what if you haven't got the budgets? What, what should, would, what should people, people be doing? Um, and, and I think, I'd said, or, or low budgets or low autonomy. What what would I recommend? And and I think again, it, it's it's trying to get on project teams. It's speaking to people. It's never been so easy to reach people to to speak to with with obviously social media. You you're not guaranteed a response, but if you position it normally with, you know, Mister McSee, your subject matter expert in this this regard, would would you have 10 minutes that I could could ask you a few questions. You know, you're a friendly guy. I, I can't imagine you shutting the door if someone were to to ask that. If you think, uh, you know, how can you get a view or how can you get um, access to people that are, are subject matter experts, yeah. it, it's very easy now. Whether they're doing articles on Medium, whether they've written books, whether they've appeared in a podcast, you go into Spotify or whatever your podcast provider is and punch their name in, then, you know, there's a lot of material that that you can download. And uh, whether it's a particular area that your company is working on, so, for example, if they're working on a pricing project, then then you could say, okay, how does this work? What what are the 
what are the metrics what can i add value as a project team and mm. diligently study as much as you can so that you can add value as part of a project team um and and i think by by being proactive and diligently reading up on on some of the initiatives and uh, the latest research or material that is out there you're more likely to get on other project teams and you're more likely to be someone seen as someone that is studious and is going to put the work in and yeah. it's going to add value so it becomes a, a virtuous cycle so more really trying to find out the subject matter expert and really digging as going down that rabbit hole and digging yeah. as deep as as you can on a particular area yeah um, I, well i think also you know thinking about uh dear rory sutherland and you know, his advice, you know, which is all about increasing your surface area, you know, I think such a lovely thought um, and and being open, you know, and, and rather than being close to things and, you know, and, and just saying yes. And and you just never know where, where it will take you. So, you know, I, I, I mean, between LinkedIn and Twitter, I mean, that's my two favourite platforms and I spend a, a too much time on them. But, um, but I think it's where interesting things happen. And I wouldn't have a business or a podcast or anything if it wasn't for LinkedIn and Twitter, you know. Um, and as you say, it is so easy to reach people now. And most people will come back and give you some sort of answer or help or point you in the right direction, you know, which is which is always fantastic. So, yeah, it's really, really helpful. So well, that's Rory Sutherland in terms of material, it's, it's seemingly limitless, right? Because... Two phenomenal books. Uh, obviously, he's fa famous for the TED Talk on Eurostar, but meant many other fascinating things as well. And then I saw him speak at the the restaurant conference maybe about five weeks ago. Yeah, in January. And yeah. then he went through and presented, and there wasn't a single anecdote, story, data point, or anything that I'd ever seen in any of his presentations before. No. no. There's still fresh observations. I, I, yeah, I'm just completely in love with him. It was funny, I did a podcast with him and I don't think I even got to do an intro. He just went, you know, <laughs> just was like, hi, Rory, bang. That was him. And it was like two hours pretty much of just stuff. And the only reason I think it stopped was I think his daughter turned up or something. <laughs> that was, I would still be going now probably. But um, yeah. Well, I spoke I mean, to yeah. Rory at this event. I said, uh, I said, your your uh, grandfather was a, was a, a doctor in Tredega and said, uh, so... My grandfather, as I'd mentioned, was was from Tredega. And he said, well, where are you from? And I said, Krakow. He said, well, my grandfather finished in Tredega and moved to Krakow. Oh, no way. Yeah, so uh, oh, he would have lived cool. uh, and been a doctor, but obviously, before before I was on the scene or, or living in uh, anywhere. Yeah. But doc, Dr. Sutherland would have been a, a doctor in Krakow during nice. some era. Very cool. So um, just before we go, I've got some fun questions, but... Uh, that we were going to do at the start, but we've ended up doing it at the end. Um, so just in terms of books, you get any books that you're reading right now you think people should be reading? Because I know you're you're very prolific on that score. Yeah, in, in terms of the, the one most recently I, I uh, recommended to you and online is the um, Unreasonable Hospitality book. Yep. And, I, and, I, and people have asked why I thought that was good. And... I think it's just a case of that there are a lot of books that come from a chef's angle and, and a, mm. obviously a chef's love of the art and the craft. 
but there aren't so many about front of house and the prominence and how people can be surprised and delighted. But then the thought that Will had given to doing that at scale and having a lot already lined up to try and obviously impress those customers at 11 Madison Park, which which had been obviously then got to number one on the San Pellegrino. So that, w- that was a, a, a good read. And it was, it's fairly emotional as well because he talks about losing his mum at a, at a young age. Uh, I then re- reread Marco Pierre White's Devil in the Kitchen. Okay. Which, which is super. It obviously is from a chef's angle because, because <laughs> it's Marco, but it, it's a great, great read and, and has a lot more detail rather than just the dishes that he was cooking, but some of the intricacies of some of the deals he was doing, his time with Granada after the, the takeover. And interestingly, given the, the amount of probably not favorable press that Sirocco Forte has, he was actually, Marco cites him as one of the, the first people to take hotels and celebrity chefs and, and actually put them together. Mm-hmm. So uh, he talks about then moving from Harvey's to the Hyde Park Hotel, in achieving the three, the third star. Nico Ledenis having a three star at another Forte property. So that's another one which which is a great read. So the other two books I'd recommend, Mark, which are, which are advertising, but but a great read for anyone interested in marketing, uh, by Paul Feldwick. Or I believe is originally from Abergavenny, but he had a very senior career in advertising. And uh, the first is Anatomy of Humbug, which looks at the different uh, approaches of advertising over the years before concluding that it should be similar to the activities that P.T. Barnum used to do. So that's where the, the phrase humbug comes up. Oh. And then his other book, which is uh, I Know Why the Peddler Sings, which is really focused on brand fame. So fame being the ultimate goal of physical and mental availability. And if people know your brand, they're more likely to to buy your brand. So probably recommend those two. Nice. No, that's cool. No, I knew you'd have a couple because I knew you've always got a couple in the go. Um, So last couple of questions, just some fun stuff then. So mark out of 10 questions, you're well-traveled well fed and watered around the world over the years so i'd be really interested to hear what you've got to say on these so favorite city to eat in you you may have had it over the history because you've you've had some amazing episodes but it it would actually be Phnom Penh, which uh, i lived in for two and a half three years uh fantastically talented chefs that are there the cost of setup obviously a lot more favorable to a lot of other Asian cities and really eclectic uh, dishes and, and cuisines that were available. Clearly French influenced, so you can get your, your steak tartare and your oysters and you have a number of upscale restaurants there, uh, but also holes in the wall, uh, more casual. You know, Saturday night out in Asia, Phnom Penh would really take some topping. Nice. Favorite hotel and why? Well, before the call, I worked out that I've probably spent about 20% of my adult life staying in hotels. <laughs> so I did live in a hotel, obviously, in Phnom Penh, and then was probably spending around 50 to 100 nights during travel. 
My favorite, if you were to say again, where you can stay here for free or I could be transported, would be Hotel Jaya River Park, Siem Reap, again, the Kingdom of Cambodia. The, the person running that hotel is a gentleman called Christian de Boer. He's a Dutch gentleman who worked for Richard Branson, worked for Mandarin Oriental for a number of years. And the, the stuff that he does is truly innovative. He, he's a corporate social responsibility champion. He's actually on a number of UN committees spearheading that. Wow. But what he also did for the destination of CM Reap a long time ago was got rid of plastic water bottles and came up with a initiative called Refill, not Landfill. So you check in, you get your water capsule, and then cafes, tourist shops, and everyone else. So obviously wanted the tourists to go there, put water machines in where people can just top up the water and they've already got their personalized cup. Um, uh, but from every aspect of being a hotelier, such as free use of the tuk-tuk, free minibar, everything is about the guest experience. Mm. And it's it's probably 36 rooms in Siem Reap, very close to the temples. It, it would be wonderful if when he's finished with Hotel Jaya, he's got a bigger sphere of influence because he, he's really one of the most talented people in hotels. Amazing. Uh, favorite coffee shop? Ah, well, that is Harry, my eldest, calls it Six Finger Coffee because the logo has six fingers on it. It's actually called Bon Coffee and it's here on Lordship Lane in Dulwich. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's run by Ben and Millie and I have a good, good chat with them every morning. You can't actually sit on site. So, Again, that probably helps with time management that I take my flat white and then straight to the office to, to work on it. But um, fantastic quality coffee and lovely service. They always ask, what are you up to the rest of the day? And the engagement is is really superb. Nice. Favourite bar or pub? This changed as to whatever destination I was in. In Dubai, it was Fibber McGee's, which is a standalone Irish bar that is behind Sheikh Zayed Road and is the only uh, bar that's not attached to a hotel. So I don't know how they ever, ever got a license. But a Thursday night, which was like a Friday night there, Guinness would have really been how you would finish the week off. The Phoenix, obviously at the Langham, would have yes. a drink there on a Friday night. In Singapore, it was a place called KPO, which is clearly post office. And in Phnom Penh, it was a British pub called the Green Vespa. And that would also, that would actually be a Saturday lunchtime drink because I would work Saturday mornings and it would be a a Bloody Mary with bacon and eggs and the British papers. Very cool. And then favourite restaurant to finish off? My favourite restaurant globally is is in Abergavenny. It's the Hardwick. It's run by an incredible chef called Stephen Terry, who... Is a great guy, and he's worked at uh, he worked at Harvey's under Marco Pierre White and, and with Gordon Ramsay. He opened a canteen in Chelsea Harbour and got a, a Michelin star at the age of twenty five. He also then headed up Toast, which was Oliver Payton's place, and he's of, also worked at three star restaurants like Le Gavroche, Le Roche in Saint Tropez, La Page. And we're incredibly lucky in Wales that 
his wife is Welsh and the gastro pub that, that he's opened is, is five miles from where we live and he cooks all the time. So mm. it's not just a name over the door, you know, it's probably, and is certainly one of the best gastro pubs in the UK. And I would have duck hash and Johnny Morris steak and triple cooked chips. And it would enjoy the, the beauty of the mountains. Nice. I know how much, well, I know of him um, from Great British Menu and, and, and programmes like that. He just seems such a lovely fella as well. Just so down to earth, quite a gentle soul. He's super humble. He, he was just on with James Martin Saturday and he does get recognised uh, to a degree because he does some television t- television appearances. But uh, yeah, a, a lovely guy. And, and he just, the last weekend... Uh, so he supports a charity called Tea Haven, which is a a wonderful children's charity which uh, do a chef's night out, and he he really uh, th- tens of thousands were were bid towards having a couple of private dinners from Chef Stephen Terry. So oh. yeah, like I said, the, the Wales are very lucky to to have him. They won't see him on any Michelin list because he washed his hands from Michelin a while ago and is just concentrating on uh, the, the guest experience and really making sure that people don't think it's highfalutin complex food, but really the best ingredients and the, the best quality gastro pub. Yeah. Well, just on that point, it was Michelin stars last night, right? Um, do you think there is going to be a backlash at some point? I mean, even I saw some quotes on LinkedIn today, even from the people who've got, twos and threes actually kind of going against it. And I've seen this kind of post about Michelin's attire company doesn't know anything about food. Da, 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 da. So there, there seemed to be a bit of a backlash. I mean, do you think it will last forever or do you think it will outdate at some point? No, I, I think the, the the history, the heritage and everything is so strong that if that's the the track you want to go down and and it's really you know, the, the quality cue that, that matters most for you, you will continue to do that. More destinations are, are asking for it. So Michelin moved to Dubai last year, Abu Dhabi last year. And th- these are big money spinners for Michelin because then the destination pay a lot of money for them to bring a guide to to their city. Um, again, Pierre White on, the, on that book I recommended earlier, he sent them back when he had three stars and, and he made the... The statement that you made it's like the i'm being judged by people that that don't know anything about culinary compared to me or mm. they don't know as much as i do about culinary so why are they judging me and putting all this pressure on the various various chefs but i think it's incredibly competitive globally people do look for quality cues um and and again the the guide has that that global reputation that that people do look for it uh and and the the world's best clearly is important as well because this gentleman that wrote unreasonable hospitality was all off the back of that organization calling 11 Madison Park the best restaurant in the world in their oh. opinion and he wouldn't have had a book really really yeah. if if he weren't able to to say i've worked at the world's best restaurant so yeah. You know, it's not for everyone. Not every. I, I don't go to a destination and, and look for a Michelin guide. I always go for a personal recommendation. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, but I, I don't think it's going anywhere. It will only grow in in uh, importance, I think. Nice. All right. Well, listen, I better let you go. I'll love you and leave you, but that that has just been such a good chat, Gareth. And as I say, there's 400 questions still sitting there that we haven't got to, but we'll maybe get you on again and I can I can be a little bit more, right, that, 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 that. Um, but there's just so much to talk about. You've had such a rich career um you know you, you and you've lived a few lives i think um, which is really <laughs> impressive and you know even from just talking to you and, and and us sort of shooting the breeze in a lot of ways you know listeners will get so much out of it you know from from your experience so thank you all right have a good rest of the day and enjoy <laughs> your your film tonight yeah thank you very much all the best from this end cheers thanks Take mate care. see ya So there you go. What a fantastic episode. And we've known each other for years now, Gareth and I, but we've never actually properly met. It's really nice when you meet these people in life that actually you've been living sort of parallel lives with similar organisations, similar contacts, but you've just never managed to meet. And it's all the better that you do now. And you've got all that rich kinship and bonding that you can talk about going forward. So I think you get a lot there in terms of great advice in business the rise of his career and some tips for yours. Also thinking about great time management and the amazing books and literature that Gareth reads on a daily basis that then keeps him ahead of the game. Some really inspirational stuff there and also some real big life moments where the opportunity presents itself and what you do is you pack up your stuff, you get in a plane and you follow your gut and that's exactly what he's done all the way through and you can see it's really paid off for him so now settled in Dulwich with the family he's having a great life now really enjoying I guess being the master of all these franchises across the world getting a really wide and varied vista in terms of his working career and look at the experience the guy has so I'd really encourage you to reach out to Gareth he's the most helpful person I've ever met and he'd be really chuffed to hear from any listeners that want to get in touch also if you are looking for a franchise with one of Gareth's great brands at Focus Brands then of course do drop Gareth a line as well I'll put his details in the podcast notes this podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity and serve guests better. Just visit vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic and get in touch with the team right away. That's vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic. Thanks also to our silver partners HDI, Saved by Robots and Airship and Toggle for their support as this podcast would not be possible without all of our partners. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off for another podcast and I'm really looking forward to the next time we're together. Next time, we'll hear from many, many more interesting people with top tips, tricks and tales that will make your brand boom.